This morning we're going to be in John 17. And in chapter 16, we looked at what the Lord's instructions were to his disciples. We looked at his promising them the Holy Spirit. Uh, We looked at him talking about, talking to the disciples and really us by extension. And he said, you know, in me, you will have peace, you know. And he said, in the world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. This is amazing. Jesus didn't even go to the cross yet. He didn't even rise from the dead, but he's speaking in the past tense, although where he was in linear time, he was in the present. So he was speaking a future event that actually was, when it was future, it will become past tense. So this is how confident Jesus was that he was going to save humanity from their sins. He knew he would have to go to the cross, uh, and he knew he was going to rise again. And we're going to see some more past tenses as we go through uh, John chapter 17. Now, This morning, we're going to be in 17, which is really the Lord's Prayer. Now, some, you're going to scratch your heads as I read this and say, well, the Lord's Prayer, isn't that the Our Father? Isn't that Matthew 6? That's not what you're reading, Pastor Joe. However, that's really the disciples' prayer. Because when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he gave them the elements of how when you you look up to the heavens and you pray to God, that, that this is what we should be looking at, you know, honoring the Lord and Uh, asking for forgiveness and forgiving others as the Lord forgave us and provisions for our daily lives. So it's it's not even a method or a formula, but it's a mindset. But today we're going to cover what's truly the Lord's Prayer uh, because we're going to see that this intimate communion, this fellowship between Jesus, you know, God the Son and God the Father. And this is another one of those instances in Scripture, and there's a few of them, where where the Lord just takes the facade of the, the wood and the electricity and the flesh and blood and the concrete, and he, he moves the curtain of the temporal world, and he shows us a glimpse of, of eternity, of the afterlife. We saw this in Revelation 4 when we covered the Revelation 4 study. You know, the Lord moved that curtain aside, and we got to see the throne room of God. Now, it's black and white on a page, but your imagination runs wild when you read this. And the disciple John was doing the best he could to, as he sees these things, he's, he's writing it down in, in the best way he could describe it. The sea of glass and the living creatures and the Lord on the throne. Well, this is another one of those instances where he, he moves the curtain and Jesus purposely was, was communing and, and speaking to the Father in earshot and maybe eyeshot of the disciples so they could get this picture of eternal things. So this is what we're dealing with. Now, what we find is that prayer is not just a rote memorization. And I used to think that. I would memorize a prayer, and it would be rote, and it would be religious, and I didn't even know what I was saying. But what, what the Lord is showing us through this is this, this real heartfelt discussion that we can have with the Lord, this communion, this friendship. Right? And you know, it, it's just very impressive the way the Lord does it. But it, it kind of reminds me, though, is when we look at prayer and all the ideas we have of what prayer is, do we say our prayers when we go to sleep? Do we tell our children to say their prayers, or do we really want them to talk to God? Because God listens to our children. It reminds me of this, this clergy function where a bunch of clergy, these guys were getting together, and they were talking about the right way to prayer. You know, and the priest comes up first, and he says, the right way to pray is to, to get down on your knees, 
and pray to God. And the, the, the pastor says, no, 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 you need to put your hands in the air and speak to God and look up to the heavens and pray. And yet another minister comes by and he says, no, 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 you guys got it all wrong. You've got to have your head bowed with your eyes closed. You have to have reverence for God. And in the building was a, a telephone lineman and he was working on an electrical problem. And he overhears this conversation. And he goes up to the clergy members and he says, guys, I don't mean to eavesdrop. He said, but I think I've got you all beat. And he's not a clergyman, he's a telephone lineman. And they're like, huh? And he says, I gotta tell you, the best praying I ever did was dangling upside down from a telephone pole. (laughs) Now, if that conversation ever took place, he would have been right, because that's a real heartfelt prayer, Lord help me, you know? So we're going to look at prayer and we'll see some lessons that we could learn from that. In verse 1, John 17, it says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. A few things we learn is that God is to be glorified. And... You know, as clergy or, you know, pastors, whoever, we have to be careful not to steal God's glory. Not that we could do that. But, you know, there's a, a movement, the emerging church movement, which seems to make, tries to make God so relatable that they actually cheapen his glory. And that's not something we want to do. Glory or glorify is used five times in these short verses. Now, I went to Webster's Dictionary and I looked up glory. And this is what it told me. Glory means splendor, radiance, majesty, brilliance, magnificence, esteem, honor, worshipful adoration, or praise. Now, do you know any person that's that's reserved for? None except Jesus, you know, God coming in the form of man. But no person is able to embody that. However, God the Father and God the Son uh, embody the word glorify and glory. Now, do you realize, though, on a a small level, that we can glorify God with our lives, with our lifestyle? Isn't that amazing? Now, it's not that we can give God something that he doesn't have. He owns it all. However, when we we live a life that's that's serious about our faith, and, and even sometimes without even saying a word, our actions and our lifestyle can glorify God. And as this world keeps hurtling towards hopelessness in society, people will pick up on that. And they'll ask you questions. And they'll ask you how you deal with certain issues. So I guess my question is, we have to ask ourselves, does my life glorify God? Well, even if it doesn't, it can. You know, it can. And that might be a prayer. Lord, help my life to glorify you, Lord. I want to reach out to people. I want to have an effect on others, especially my loved ones. And our life can glorify God, and that's exciting. In the second point, in verse 2, it says, Christ has authority over all flesh. He is the key to eternal life and salvation. And the third point, in verse 3, 
It says eternal life basically is predicated upon a relationship uh, with the Father really through the Son. And that's important as well. And that relationship starts here and it starts now. Now, I hear sometimes people say, well, I, I just hope that when I die that I get to heaven. And people can go on many years like this, just hoping that when they die, they can get to heaven. But do you realize that you can start that relationship now? And I I often ask people, well, why would you want to get to heaven and spend eternity with a, a God or a creator or a father in heaven that you never took time to get to know here? Now, and please, let me just say this as an illustration, not to make fun, but we spoke about the Manti Teo situation where he had a relationship with somebody for three years that he never met, and it actually turned out this person never existed. Okay, so, and I, and I take that parallel, and I ask the question, I want to develop that relationship with him now. When I get to the pearly gates, when we get to the pearly gates, would we even recognize God if we haven't had a relationship with him now? See, if we don't have a relationship with him now, we can be deceived while we're here on earth. So that's really important to have that relationship. It can start today for some of you if you don't have that. Fourth point, in verses 4 and 5, Jesus Christ, the Son, glorified the Father by finishing his work on earth, finishing his work on the cross. And he said, I have finished it. Remember, we're a few hours out from him being arrested, being beaten up, being dragged, being tied to that cross, having the the nails pierce his wrists and his ankle bones area. We're we're not even there yet. We're not even near the, the resurrection and the ascension. And Jesus says, I have finished the work. Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate promise keeper. He always kept his word. To him, it was a done deal. He knew that they were going to do this to them, to him. He knew that while he was on the cross, he was going to die for our sins, for everyone in this room, in this building. And and you know what's really neat? Again, how do we glorify God? By emulating him, by keeping our promises as well. You know, by making a commitment to the Lord, by making a commitment to reach out and affect others. But this is what we have, is the cross. It was a hideous object, but through that ugly cross, and we talked about how the cross was blood-stained and had probably pieces of human flesh, and it wasn't pretty, and it wasn't carved really nice like a carpenter would. It was basically a tree. And they would tie the pieces together, and they would notch them, and it was a whole process of how they would take their prisoners and, and crucify them, but it was, they would just use them over and over. It was disgusting. As a matter of fact, in Roman society, in polite circles, you didn't speak about crucifixion. It was a part of society we want to block out of our mind. But God took that hideous instrument And he made something glorious out of it. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was thinking of me 2,000 years ago, and he was thinking about everybody here. Very impressive. So Christ is glorified in that he went through with this. Why? Because of his love for you and I. He also glorified the Father because God wanted the whole world to be saved. We read that in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The plan was sealed in Jesus Christ. So what we have here is this situation with the cross. And the second thing that we find out is that God the Father was glorified, but also God the Son was glorified. We talked about that. A, by saving humanity from their sins, and B, by going back to the state 
that he was prior to the incarnation. I love these words. He says, Father, this is the glory that we shared that you and I had right before the world was. Christ is eternal. You know, we, we look at the babe in the manger during Christmas time and all the postcards, and it's like he's the eternal babe in the manger. No. He lived before the world was even made. And John 1 tells us that everything was made. It wasn't made unless it went through the sun. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses will teach, and they'll tell you that Jesus was a created being, you know, and he was a, a lesser God, and then he, he became a man, and then he became the archangel Michael. Jesus isn't a shapeshifter. He's consistent. He's always been God. When he came in the manger, he took the form of human flesh, but he was still God. And this is so neat about how the son is reminiscing with the father about this glory that they shared before the world was even a thought. Forgive me, I'm, I'm losing my voice, but um, I'm squeaking at times, but you know, just, I'm going to try to make it through here. So this is, this is really, really neat stuff that we could look at. And Jesus Christ divested some of his divine attributes. Why? Because of his love for you and I to come here. He divested his omnipresence. You know, he took the, the form of a man so he could only be at one place at a time. Some of those incredible divine attributes, he left them because of his love for you and I. This is an incredible commitment. When you think about love, love is sacrificial. And Jesus was the ultimate one that sacrificed everything for his love for you in this room, every individual in this room. Now, it's safe to say that as we look back on these first five verses, yes, the glorification of the Father, but also the glorification of the Son. Jesus Christ has to be our foundation. You know what I find amazing in Leviticus 8 in the Old Testament, that the priests with the sacrifice and the blood, they would take the blood and they would, they would sprinkle it on, the, on Aaron's sons on the, the tip of their ear and, and the right thumb and the right big toe. And basically that was to signify this, this sacrifice and that really was a picture of Jesus, that everything that we do in life, everything that we hear, has to be filtered through our relationship with Jesus. Everything that we do with our hands has to be filtered through our relationship with the Lord. And everywhere that we step and we walk, sometimes we go places we don't belong. And we know we don't belong there. But the priest had that memory because of the, the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. Keep that in mind. In addition, Christ taught by example obedience to the Father and his word. And this is tough because we live in a society where we're taught to, and we see it, an unraveling United States American society. It looks like the glory days are behind us. You know, there's disobedience to teachers. Teachers really struggle in this area because there's such disrespect. You know, disobedience to God's word. Civil disobedience, disobedience to any type of authority. We are a nation in many ways of rebels. You know, we just want to do it our way. And, we don't want, and when we come into the church, we've got to shed some of that, a lot of that. Because Jesus showed us how to be obedient to the Father. We also need to be obedient to the Father and his word. Very important. Sometimes Christians have trouble in their lives because they're not submitted because they're not obedient to the word, and they wonder why they struggle so much. This could be one of those reasons. Verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men, these disciples, whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. 
For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they receive them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Mission accomplished. And we look at this next section of prayer really is uh, Jesus praying for his disciples. And again, there's lessons for all believers. And next Sunday, we're going to cover the rest of this. Uh, We're only going to get to verse 13 today. But the disciples had an important mandate. Jesus was the foundation, and each disciple, these disciples, they were the building blocks of the church that we now enjoy today. The institution known as the church, or the people that are called out of the world into Christ's glorious light. But what's amazing is that Jesus is standing up for these disciples. Now remember, put your mind back into the situation, into history. This is before the cross. This is before the arrest by the authorities. And what is Jesus doing? He's standing up for these men, even though that he knows in a few hours they are going to blow it big time. That's an object lesson for God's mercy. Were they perfect? No. But did they understand the basic things of the Father because Jesus manifested his name? Yes. Did they have a foundation of a spiritual understanding? Yes. Were they going to get everything 100% right? No. 2,000 years later, will we? No. Remember, we're going to blow it too. But God sees every person in this room as a lump of clay that he can fashion to make a beautiful object out of. Every person in this room. Now, he's going to have to take some excess pieces off. He's going to have to heat it up. He's going to have to take his hands around it and and work it. He's done that in my life, and he's, he's still not finished with me. However, he sees us for the finished work that we are, that we can become. So keep that in mind. Whatever you're dealing with right now, God sees you as a finished work. And this is true self-esteem. That, number one, we know that we're lost sinners in need of a, a Savior. But number two, we know that God has a design and purpose for our lives. Every single person in this room. It's up to you whether you want to seek that or not. God says, seek me. You'll find me. Ask me questions. I'll answer you. And I'm paraphrasing. Satan will accuse you, though, and he's going to be right. I have no doubt, and Satan is the the accuser of the brethren. And I have no doubt on a regular basis that Satan goes to the Father in his limited capacity to stand before him. And just like Job and just like Peter, he says, Pastor Joe, he was a hypocrite again today. You know, you should be done with that idiot. Just dump him. And you know what? In a lot of ways, he's right. Because he sees... What I, what I do. He sees that I also still sin. Right? However, I have an advocate, and that's Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that intercession. Jesus stands up and says, whoa, 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 whoa. let me see those charges. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Father, look at these. I paid for these on the cross. I paid for that hypocrisy. 2,000 years later, he paid for my sin of hypocrisy of whatever I can do. You know, he didn't treat his wife nice on Saturday, you know. And he's got that list. And Jesus says, no, there's not one of those I missed. I checked them all off at the cross. He's done the same thing for you. So just just keep that in mind. Next time you have this tendency to really get down on yourself and think that God can't use you. Verse 9. Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And 
all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. So now Christ makes a distinction. These groups of people, the world, the world system, the rebellious world that rebelled against God and, and decided that the world was going to go its own way, we were going to take God's creation, thumb our nose at him and do whatever we pleased. That's a society we're living in even today. The world hasn't changed much. However, Jesus makes the distinction between the unsaved world or the rebellious world and those that he's plucked out of the world. Plucked, he keeps plucking them every day. People are being plucked out of the world and they're becoming in that pool of believers. He wants the whole world to be saved, the Bible tells us. So what do we find here? To the believer who's plucked out of the world, Christ is an intercessor. And I spoke about that. Somebody who mediates, somebody who stands in the gap for us, somebody who intercedes, somebody who can make our defense when we're defenseless. I stand before God without Jesus Christ. I can make all the arguments I want. I'm still judged and I'm damned because my sins have brought me to a place where I cannot be in God's presence for eternity. But for the believer who believes in Jesus Christ, he makes intercession. Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34 speaks about that. To the unbeliever, what do they need? They need love. But what they need is conviction and convincing. The world needs to be convinced and convicted of their sin. They need to be convinced of righteousness, that it does exist. They need to be convinced of their sin and their need for a savior so that they can now be plucked out of the world and go into the category of the believers. Right? Now, some, when, you, when you read the scripture, and, and there's some that are, are just afraid, you know, even from pulpits and, and stages and churches with crosses, and they're afraid to talk about hell and damnation. But here's the, here's the deal. Nobody has to go there. That's the beautiful part of it. Yes, it exists. Yes, we have to speak about it. Because if it didn't exist, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die for our sins. And some say, well, well that's not nice. Well, I've got to tell you, many years ago, when I was living my life as a teen and in my early 20s, um, I didn't need nice men to come to me and, and, and be nice to me and rub my hand. I needed men to, to, to come to me and say, listen, your path is a damning path. You, you continue this way, and when you die, it's not going to be pretty. I didn't need anybody to be nice to me. I needed somebody to, to wake me up. And after hearing this so many times, it opened my eyes, and I got plucked out of the world, and I got into the pool of the believers. And now the Lord makes intercession for me. So you see how that works? The world doesn't need nice. The world needs conviction, because the world is in rebellion to the things of God. So through conviction and belief... We go from the world to the pool of believers, um, then a relationship is established, and then, just like any relationship, all the benefits of that relationship as believers, intercession, answered prayer, there's a whole list of them. Can Christ mediate those who don't want to be mediated? No, of course not. Well, I don't want his mediation. They laugh. They scoff at it. You know, in our municipality and probably most municipalities in the United States and, and, and further is... If you are accused of something, you can go uh, to court-appointed mediation. You know, it's actually better than taking your chances with the judge because there's some, there's some wiggle room there. They, they can work things out for you. But there's some that they refuse court-appointed mediation. I'll take my chances with the judge. That's foolish. Now, some, unfortunately, do that with their eternal souls. I don't need mediation. I'll take my chances with the judge. Good luck on that one. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going covered under the blood of Christ. It's the way I'm going. So conviction and regeneration have to re precede 
active mediation. Verse 11, Jesus says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, meaning Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, the third instance that I spoke about this morning, about Jesus speaking about a future event as if it happened in past tense. I love that about him. You know, I'm leaving the earth. I'm I'm out of the world. I'm not even here anymore. A few hours from now, yeah, that would have been the case. But he's speaking about it as, as if it was past tense. And he was espousing his cause in his last will and testament, so to speak. Father, keep them. Take care of them. The primary objective is for the disciples and the believers, what does he say here? To be as one, as you and I are one. This unity. This father and son are one, and I want those disciples to be one as we are one. Well, that's hard when you deal with sinners, isn't it? That's hard when we live in a world where, even when we're married and we love our spouses, we still have elements of selfishness in that relationship. Even with our children. I don't know that any parent ever looks back on their life and says, I was a perfect parent. Right? So you're laughing, you know. I can't say that about myself. In every relationship that we have on the earth, there's some amount of selfishness that's attached to it. And he's saying for them to be as one, they're not even family, they're not even biological family, as we are one. Christian unity, so important among believers, but not often practiced. Now, did the disciples have their problems? Sure. In the book of uh, Galatians, you see Peter and Paul had a little kerfuffle there, and um, you know, Paul had to withstand him to his face and tell Peter, you're being a hypocrite. Did they work it out afterwards? Sure they did. Sure they did. In the book of Acts, you know, Paul and Barnabas, right, these, they, they were, you know, were going to set the world on fire with their, with their missions. And they had this big dispute over John Mark, so much so that Paul and Barnabas actually split. They didn't talk for a while. You go your way, you take the north, I'll take the south. I think God used that actually, this silly argument they had to really reach a, a larger audience. But of course they worked it out afterwards. So we're going to have our moments with each other. But ultimately, we need to have unity. Now, as a church, we've reached out to other churches, and we've done, thing as, done things as leaders to reach out to other pastors in the area that are solid uh, men of God, and, and it's been great. But there's also unity that believers must share as well. It's not just for the leadership. You know, we have to, we have to resist the urge when somebody offends us to just run away, you know, to just go as far as we can. Like it or not, we are brothers and sisters. Now, I have news for you. I have two truths that I want to share with you. Number one, you can't pick your biological family. (laughs) Okay? Whatever brothers and sisters you have, or aunts and uncles, or parents, or children, they're yours. You know, it's, it's biology. God decides who's born into what family. I got news for you. The second point is, you often can't pick your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And for some of you, that's a double whammy. <laughs> but, you know, this is it. We've got to make things work. You know, the Bible says, if at all possible, be at peace with all men. Not easy, but it's something that we have to look at. And when you think about your, your BFF, your best friend forever, uh, maybe looking back, maybe you guys couldn't stand each other at first, and you laugh as you think about the way you kind of got together. 
And now you laugh about it. And I find sometimes that when people rub us the wrong way, we see things in ourselves that they're doing, and it irritates us. Remember, my sin looks a lot better on me than it does on Leon over there. You know, point the finger, oh, look at that sin. I could be a hypocrite. I could be doing the same thing, but it just looks better on me. And, of course, I want the Lord to forgive me more because it's me. I'm the pastor, right? I I repent every day. But the question is, are we that fragile? Do we want to live in a protective bubble? And if we do, what kind of witness is that to the rest of the world? Jesus said, they will know you, my disciples, and my Christians, 2013 in New Jersey, by your love for each other. So it's really something that we have to consider. Now, I'm not minimizing the fact that relationships are difficult in the 21st century. I'm not minimizing that. Certainly all the distractions, the technological distractions, really kind of help us to, well, not help us, hurt us, to turn inward and be more self-absorbed. And and unfortunately, that's the age that we live in. So we really have to try harder. Your friends on Facebook, if you've got a thousand friends, not all your friends, please. Friends. What's a friend? What is your definition of friend? You can't have a thousand friends. You know? And I'm not telling you that you have to delete them. I'm just saying... You know, seriously, are all those thousand people your friends? Please. <laughs> okay, so, some, so somebody's honest over here. <laughs> Unity is very important. Now, we use this illustration in, in actually marital counseling with husband and wife when things are going awry. But we can also use this illustration with just believers, you know, that just are believers. And they're just having some issue. What we say to a husband and wife, and one of the things we look at is we try to get each party, stop looking at your wife. Stop looking at your husband. Stop nagging each other. Work on your own issue, both of you, at the same time. Work on your your relationship with the Lord. And it's kind of like a triangle because he's the focal point, and you're kind of out here like the, the lower corners of the triangle. And as the both of you get closer to that focal point, what happens? You get closer to each other. Now, it's the same thing with believers. If we're really solid with the Lord then we're going to forgive each other's faults and irritants and annoyances a lot easier than if we're not close to the Lord. So that's something to look at as well. And sometimes you can find that um, when we see Christian unity, then you know that there's, and and I'm not talking about a facade, a fakeness, a realness, not phony, that people are really gelling with the Lord. You know, they're really getting close to him. And that's important as well. Uh, Actually, Heather taught the ladies on Saturday morning in the women's devotion about the church of Ephesus in Revelation. It was a great study. When she told me about it, I'm like, that's a good one. Because Ephesus, you know, they had works, they had patience. And Jesus is criticizing this church. They had works, they had patience, they were in the apostolic age. Lord, what could be so wrong? He says to them, you've left your first love, which was him. And there was a severe, dire consequence if they continued down that road. This church that had an outward appearance. Now today, we do the same thing. We look at a ministry. It's a beautiful website. You know, the place is packed. People are singing. But does that mean that the church is solid? Not necessarily. They have the best guest speakers. You know, they have every single ministry you could think about, even the Christian basket-weaving ministry. It's all there. But do they, do they love the Lord? You know, is there something behind that facade of what a Christian ministry is supposed to look like? 
verses 11 through 12, he says this concept, again, in two verses, he says this concept of being kept three times. When the Lord, I was always taught this, you know, way back when, when Jesus repeats himself, pay attention. Three times it says about us being to be kept. Now, this word kept, and I looked it up in the Greek, it means for us to be guarded as believers. It means for us to be watched or watched over. Or literally, and we've seen this in the Old Testament, that God keeps his eye on us. I don't know about you, but I like that. I really do. That's another great promise that even though he was speaking about these men, he was speaking about, by extension, all believers. You know, God sees everything we're going through in life, and that gives me comfort because you don't think I have bad days. You don't think I have bad weeks. You don't think I have situations that I'm like, and then, you know, my pastor taught me, he goes, this is the life of a pastor. You teach Sunday to Sunday to Wednesday to Sunday, and life happens in the middle of those days, and you have to work it through. But you know what gives me comfort? Knowing that the Lord has his eye on me. Now, you might have come from a religion where you almost feel that God has his eye on you because he's waiting for you to slip up so he can field goal and punt you. That's not the God we serve. He has his eye on us because he wants to keep us. He wants to guard us. He wants to say, I know what you're going through, but I'm right here with you. I'm right here. I hear every step. I see every teardrop that falls. I'm here with you. I see every episode of you going into a little depressive funk. I'm here with you. I love that about him. Verse 12, he says, Jesus says, only one is lost, and that's the son of perdition, Judas, who was really, you could say he was a type of the Antichrist to come. You know, he came in, he infiltrated, Jesus knew, he wasn't fooled. But scripture had to be fulfilled. You look at Psalms 41.9, Psalm 109.8, you know, Judas, Judas could have repented, but this is the, the path that he chose, to sell out the Lord. He did fulfill scripture, and it doesn't, doesn't look like at the end of his life that he really repented. Even today, you can't be responsible for people's choices. You teach them, you pour into them, ultimately they have free will, and they make their own decisions. So just remember that. I, I've gotten caught up in that, where you're, you're, in, you're in pain for somebody. You know, you just want to fix them. You want to, and God's like, that's my job. Move out of the way. You know what I'm saying? They need to go through this right now. But Judas made his choice. Last verse that we're going to cover this morning. He says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. There's that word joy again. Living a life of joy. To everyone here this morning, you might be here for the first time, that joy is available to you. Now think about this. Sometimes we read through scripture. We have to stop and really meditate on what these words mean because the Holy Spirit placed these words in here for a reason. We've seen the word joy used over the last few chapters. Joy. Now, in everyday conversation... I don't know about you, but I don't really hear the word joy. Hey, it's going to be a joy to get up at 5 in the morning and fight rush hour traffic and go to work. You really must be filled with the Spirit that day if you said that. It was a joy when my, my child got sick and I was up all night cleaning up diarrhea diapers. Life, Sunday to Sunday. It was a joy that I had three tests this Friday at school that I had to study for. You don't hear it that much. Everyday life. 
But Jesus has a secret for us to have joy in a more depressing and more hopeless world. We can have that joy. I like that. As we wrap up, really the philosophical part, portion here, now we're going to go next Sunday, or actually after chapter 17, we're going to go into Jesus' arrest, you know, the, the, the machinations of what the leaders are going to do to, to bring him and, and beat him and scourge him and, you know, the cross. So we're going to look more, we're going to go from the philosophical part now to more the historical part. We're going to look at history, okay, after this. But before we do that, because we don't see joy again for a while, I want to really leave us on that note. Okay, joy. Number one, we discover joy when we fully understand, going through the last few chapters, we fully understand Christ's substitutionary death on the cross as well as his resurrection, ascension, and promise of the Holy Spirit and how they apply to me personal. You know, and oftentimes in Christianity we tell people, don't focus on yourself. You're too focused on yourself. But then there's times that we get to focus on ourselves, like now. You know, every person in here, Bob, Jim, Sue, Jill, Jesus died for my sins personally. Walk everybody out in the church in your mind and really meditate on the fact that you personally, Jesus went to the cross so your sins could be forgiven and you could have eternal life. Number one. Number two, we have joy when we desire and seek, according to the scripture, a fulfilling personal relationship with God, unknown to the disciples up to this point, and maybe this morning, unknown to some of you here. And Jesus in John 10 says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So yes, we get heaven and all the benefits of heaven, but yes, until we get to heaven, if we're very young, it takes us a long time to get there, we can still have an abundant life. Joy. Three, we experience joy when we remain in the Father's love and we are kept by God and we're obedient to his word. Four, we experience joy when we're in unity with God and we're in unity and we're, we're in harmony. We're, we're coalescing, we're gelling, we're meshing with other believers. And then you actually start to call these strangers who are also in the body of Christ my family. Proverbs tells us there's a, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There's, a, there's a, a woman who sticks closer than a sister. Right? Five, we experience joy when we learn what prayer really is. Not something that's memorized that we just say over and over again and we don't know why we're saying it, but truly communion with God, friendship, and a relationship with real benefits. Six, last point. Many here this morning have never heard this. But my desire for you is that your joy may be fulfilled because you just heard in the last 30-something minutes a message that was tailored for you personally. You came into this church and you don't even know God. And now, all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're face-to-face with a situation where you could get to know the living God and all the benefits that come with that relationship. Amen. Many of you have experienced this. So his desire, he says that... Pretty much in the world, you'll have tribulation, but I tell you these things so that you know that in me, you'll have peace. You'll also have joy. Let's pray. Father.